progress. It's in the actions we take right now and in daring to think differently. Each one of us can do something to change things for the better, right where we are now. And a thousand small things done with intent adds up to real change. For some people, that initial spark becomes a fire. Welcome to the Every Woman Changemakers podcast. I'm Anna, your host, and every month I'll be talking to inspiring leaders and activists who are changing outlooks, challenging perceptions, and making a difference in the worlds of inclusion, business, the environment, sport, travel, and more. We'll be discussing their work, motivations, and vision, and most importantly, how a revolution of one can lead to a positive, powerful change for the many. Today, we're talking to Lavinia Stennett, founder of The Black Curriculum, a social enterprise that challenges the lack of black British history in the UK education curriculum across all subjects, providing teacher training and campaigning for change. This perspective shift of who and what gets taught and how, she says, is crucial to really understanding our cultural history and identity. So welcome, Lavinia. Thank you. When did you realise that this is implicit racial bias was within the curriculum and and how did it affect your perspective on history? I think... I've always been aware that um, we're not really getting the full entirety of our history. When I think back to primary school, I remember there was like one um, lesson that I went into and they were saying that, you know, we need to do homework that was going to be around black inventors and pioneers. And um, that was one of the first times that I felt that I could use a lot of the material that my mum bought for me at home. So we had these books that were just on like, African-American inventors and it was great because that was the only place um, that I got at such a young age I think I was like year two or year three yeah probably year three to get that information across and I think the whole schooling um, throughout primary school and secondary school really never touched on black history in a way that I felt was indicative of the things I, I kind of knew and got at home and so I think I've always had this awareness that we're not getting the full picture but in terms of actually seeing that connection come to life in the curriculum in a way that connects to the structures that we have in the UK it came alive to me in New Zealand and that was a very visceral experience because it showed me that there is just so much um, of a connection between what we learn and how our society operates. And I think that's where it really clicked for me. I mean, that is is a really interesting uh, insight into how and what is taught and where. I mean, you talk about the fact that you had to learn Black British history at home, because if you looked for it in the mainstream curriculum, it was it was it wasn't there, was it? it you know, you weren't in any way seeing any representation other than uh, history, which it could be argued is is a story that's written by the privileged. Pretty much, I feel like the kind of examples that you get at home are a lot more kind of rooted in reality as well. So, my first experience in school was Black Americans, and like, I am a a British-born Jamaican. And so a lot of the examples that I was getting, even in school, were kind of very distant from the context that I'm rooted in. And I feel like, again, that is something that is important to consider when we're thinking about Black history, from, yeah, homeschooling to actually the curriculum as well. 20 years ago, the McPherson report showed that cultural diversity within the curriculum is is one of the ways to prevent racism. And, And similarly, the Windrush Review has recommended that colonial and migration history uh, should be taught in schools. So why has it taken so long to even approach this? Why do you think it's still something that is is not 
totally embedded in the UK curriculum? You know, what's the sticking point? It's a really good question. Um, 20 years ago, I was four. And I think I think back to that point, and I don't think it's any challenge uh, for the UK uh, to really think about what diversity can look like and true diversity in the sense of bringing in the experiences and the perspectives of those who um, have gone through events in history. And I think, you know, my grandma has been here since 1950. I know there's previous generations who've been here before that as well. And so when I think just 20 years ago, that was a recommendation. It's like, how can we ignore not only the contributions, but also the lives and also the um, the toil from a social and also economic perspective of those who have been here. So I think the reason it's taken so long is because there's a lack of urgency and impetus on behalf of, you know, those in education. When I say education, I mean education policy and also government ministers kind of thinking about actioning this because, you know, there's been campaigners since the 70s saying that we need to have black history and we need to help young people understand their identity. You know, there's been so many different kind of projects that have happened and protests. And so um, I think the discord between civil society and education policy is one of the, the, the largest things, but also more broadly, the institutional racism that persists if we ign- keep ignoring these things, it only plays back into that whole idea that, you know, the government is just insensitive to reality and the issues that many people on the ground, like my grandma, have faced and, you know, go through. Do you think that there is, in the UK, that part of it is an unwillingness uh, in some ways to look honestly at things like the country's colonial history and, you know, the expectations, perceptions and the structural racism that has actually been born from that and is, is still being worked through the system? Yeah, I have seen that there is a reluctance on part of our society to really understand um, the ills of colonialism in its broadest context. Not only, you know, was Britain once, um, you know, a really powerful nation that, you know, colonised half the world, but even beyond that, what that actually meant for people who experienced it. And I think, like, it's not amnesia because we remember it really well and, you know, we claim it in a lot of our flags and the kind of um, sentiment that is driven, particularly around um, the monarchy. We remember these really rich parts of our history that are um, basically used to benefit the narrative of Britain being this very strong power in the world. So I wouldn't say it's a historical amnesia. I just think it's a reluctance to see Britain playing a part in destroying and pillaging economies and cultures. I don't think that's the part that is hard to accept. I think it's that, well, the remnants haven't actually gone away. They're here. And it's like, well, what do we do with that? So I think it's more of like a moral kind of question about how we kind of deal with the the legacies of of that. So I don't say, I don't think it's amnesia at all. I think we see it's clear as day, um, but it's just... A difficult situation to deal with. As you said at the beginning, it's about who and what gets taught, and then how that gets framed in the in the collective consciousness of a country. I mean, it's interesting. You know, we, we talked about the Windrush review. 
to, you know, it's been recommended that that should be taught in schools as history. But actually to do that then raises very serious questions about, for example, how the Windrush generation have been treated recently and continue to be. You know, they're never, they're never things you teach out of context, are they? No, I think, especially with Windrush, it's one of those ongoing issues that's still happening today um, that can be righted with the fact that a lot of people have seen the impact of Windrush happen over the last couple of years, it's still a situation where, again, it comes back to colonialism and, like, we can't ignore that there's still that relationship between the UK and Jamaica. And that's, you know, a very contentious relationship that is, you know, I would argue, is very neo-colonial. Um, and so, again, that is part of this nexus that I think needs a little bit more exploration and people don't know how to deal with that and we just see the end of the story not the full picture and I think if you were told the full picture then people would actually understand how to piece things together and you know hold people accountable and etc. I want to come back to something you mentioned right at the beginning. You talked about having spent some time in New Zealand. And I was going to ask you, because I know that uh, you studied abroad in Aotearoa. Um, and, you know, you, you uh, from what I read, you were very interested in the way that Indigenous and colonial history was, was sort of part of the everyday, made accessible to, to everyone at all ages. I was going to say, do any countries get this educational inclusivity right? And they obviously do. So tell me a little bit more about about that first-hand experience that you had. Um, and, and, you know, crucially, what do these countries do that the UK doesn't do? Uh, so I firstly would say that I enjoyed my studies in Aotearoa. It was so exciting. It was very new. And I think, again, when you're going into a new place, you start to, like, um, compare it to where you've come from. And so I think, for me, it was very, again, alive. The education was alive. Um, and it was all based on... Um, Maori land as well which again has a really strong significance because everything that we done was connected back to the land and kind of making use of that in a very physical way as well so the learning wasn't just on paper or in just sitting in a lecture I would I was doing kapahaka and that's dance and then you also um, connect to the outdoors and yeah I think it's just it was a very alive and tangible experience I think in terms of the question around getting it right, New Zealand considers themselves as a bicultural nation. So that um, includes indigenous Maoris as well as white people. And I think because of that recognition, there is more of a like impetus for them to teach and acknowledge and also respect not only Maori land, but also the presence and the significance of their history in the curriculum. I think in the UK, the context is a lot different, particularly because it's almost subverting what happened in New Zealand in that our historical experience was off the shores of Britain. So it's not we're not on the same kind of land. And I don't think, again, we wouldn't have like a bicultural recognition because that's not what has happened historically here. We have gone through... Um, the transatlantic slave trade that was orchestrated by the British on islands that were used economically to benefit Britain. And so we've ended up coming back full circle or full triangle, if you like, to this country. And within that, it is very difficult for us to be recognised in that sense, in that triangle, if there isn't that complete understanding of what Britain actually done as a colonial power. So again, it's like a missing piece of the puzzle. The recognition has to come before 
the curriculum and it's very easy for the government and it's very easy for colonial apologists to say that you know we shouldn't be teaching black history we shouldn't be teaching you know diversity multiculturalism just because that recognition isn't there so i think again like to push the conversation forward it needs to be more accepted on a social and and, uh, a broader kind of level across society because that's what I saw in New Zealand it's not you know no one's saying that this isn't Maori land everyone knows it is and that's a fact you know whether or not that makes people uncomfortable it's it's just a fact and we don't have that here and so a lot of the learning as well also happens in a classroom and when you think about those classrooms it's usually universities not the classrooms where young people are in so again it's like you kind of have to pay a lot of money, go into very kind of elitist circles to actually understand the full picture. And, you know, the whole intention of the Black curriculum is to make sure that it's on a national and broader social level. And I think, again, that needs to happen in the UK. Such an interesting point. You're right, exactly that. There's a lot of gatekeeping before you get to see the full picture, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> so, so talk to me, you know, in terms of the Black curriculum and the work you do, where, you know, when do you see the best time to start presumably it's four, age four and five, it's early, it's normalizing mm. and it's and it's creating that accessibility and allowing at such an early age, all of the voices to be heard, not just one voice. Yeah. Um, and the time is now, I think often we wait until like October or just a good time. You know, I think just, again, <laughs> the way that we do things, it's like we categorize time and we categorize places and it's all kind of done in a way where an intentional kind of placing of getting things perfect and I think you know there's never a wrong time to teach a young person what's right and what's wrong the minute that you see them doing something that isn't right is the time to tell them that it's wrong and vice versa as well so I think you know children are a lot smarter and they would appreciate what I would have appreciated and I'm sure my niece and my family members would to get, you know, a, a full rounded education from early. And and I'm not saying that that has to just be about colonialism. It can be about black people in Tudor times. It could be simply about black hair. So again, like narratives that not just kind of are focused on one specific time or thing, but thinking again more broadly about the different experiences and events and contributions life stories that are weaved throughout the entire curriculum and across different subjects as well so I think people do instantly get scared like oh I don't want to talk about slavery to my three-year-old but I'm not saying you have to number one it's not by force I think secondly there's different parts of that narrative that you can share and like weave in very carefully so my point is is that there isn't ever a wrong time to do it and we shouldn't kind of box ourselves in to think that like this is the only thing that we can teach and it has to be depressing (laughs) and hard well well, I was gonna say I mean the black experience like you say it's it's sort of slightly reduced isn't it to sort of slavery and segregation uh and colonialism but actually the black experience also includes black scientists black poets you know like you say uh, uh, black people throughout all epochs of history doing amazing things. So it, it, again, it's it's obviously a vital thing to teach, but you know, not allowing the voices to be multifarious is also a, a sort of form of gatekeeping, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, it was really interesting to read um, decolonizing methodologies, and that was you know one of the first books I read when I was in New Zealand um, by Linda Tuai Smith, and she 
you know, thinks about conceptions of time and place and also how, um, like, linear and very kind of limiting, I guess, a lot of the things that we place on ourselves are. And when I think about the curriculum and how it's even structured, it's quite, like, it's not only quite linear, but it's very um, hard to think about it in a broader sense that can really be enriching because it's segmented in a way that separates geography from science and history from English. When you think about the way that we live life, it's all kind of seamless and it's melted together. And I think, again, like we don't experience one thing at a time. So to be able to teach something like that through the lens of black history, it has to be broad. So in some ways, it's like the curriculum in and of itself is a limitation to what we're really trying to do here, but we've got to start somewhere. And yes, to come back to the point around scientists, especially with STEM subjects, I think there again, it's like, well, where do we start? And if we didn't have the curriculum as a starting point to think about what to put into STEM, we could start to draw theories that originated in the continent of Africa around science and around astronomy and also medical science as well. Like there's so much different types of learnings that are available but because of the structures that we have it's very kind of difficult to place them in a way that we can connect them all and learn about everything nothing short of a radical overhaul is needed (laughs) (laughs) i mean and obviously you're you're one of the people leading the charge on that so when did you first come up with the idea for the black curriculum and how did you make it take off did you get a lot of positive propulsion forward or did you get any pushback it started when I was in New Zealand I, I think I think it wasn't a lecture I think it was a, during my my first or second month there and I was just going into loads of lectures and I had this idea of creating a timeline that was going to compare the experiences of black people to Maurice. and I was like nah like what's the timeline going to do? Like, it's not going to do nothing. It needs to be for everyone. So yeah, basically I put the idea into a grant and we won. Well, I won at the time. Then I brought in people that I was studying with at SOAS when I went back to the UK. Um, I met Lisa Kennedy and Bethany Thompson who um, helped develop the, not the idea, develop the infrastructure so the Black Quickly could actually kind of develop. Yeah, we bought on like freelancers in the beginning, uh, probably about 10. They created this curriculum of 12 topics. And yeah, we just started cold calling schools. And that was really interesting. There was uh, a few teachers who were like, yeah, not really. Yeah, we don't really need it or it's not going to work. But at the same time, there was such an appetite from the teachers that did want it. And they were like super keen and brought us in instantly. I mean, like I came back from New Zealand twenty. 18 around October and then by April we'd finished the curriculum by September that September 2019 we were already in like three schools teaching it so yeah it was like really good and like the appetite has obviously only grown since and particularly post Black Lives Matter last year as well so yeah it's just gone from strength to strength. It's October it's Black History Month is it a good thing to have Black History Month or is it a dangerous thing? I mean, given what you said about the amount of change at, at many levels it needs to happen, um, you know, sometimes there's an argument that awareness weeks, months, days allows people to sort of tick boxes and re- you know, relegates it to sort of a, and we do Black History in October. Um, what's your feeling on the whole thing? Um, <laughs> if, this was, if this was me like last year, I would have said, get no, like get rid of this. It doesn't make sense. However, um, I see both sides and like I think that's the beauty of not only awareness because we have great shows that 
happen in October that, you know, educate Tommy that lives in Lancashire and, you know, outside of Black History Month, that information would be available to him. And I think it's really important that, yeah, the month does serve a purpose for people who just don't really know where to start. Um, however, I do see the limitations. And I think, again, when we're thinking about as a, as a month to categorise one history, it just isn't enough. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I can even get the curriculum in a month. You know, our 12 our topic curriculum, that could not happen in um, Black History Month alone. So it's just in that sense quite redundant. But I think as a starting point, maybe, you know, the people who originally um, set out for Black History Month to be taught, I'm sure they didn't want everything to be taught in the month, but that's what it's turned into. So I think, you know, making it clear that there's more to do, I think it depends on what we do with the month the intention of those who also receive information on Black History Month, what they then go and do with the information they're learning as well. In the end, I imagine that what you'd like to see is, is you know, that the, the curriculum that Black History is, is just a natural part of the curriculum. It's, you know, not you know, sort of put in this, you know, mm. a month or, you know, we're now we're doing Black History lessons, you know, it's mm. just, it's just the experience that, that we're learning of of our country, of the world, of the way that things have you know developed and and how they need to move forward. In terms of the effects of a, of you know that more inclusive curriculum on wider society and on on young people's sort of aspirations, their sense of personal identity. I think particularly as as a you know black British person, what what kind of sense of identity you know how would it be impacted to have that inclusive curriculum? Well, I'll start with the current narratives that exist and the impact of that. So you're in school as a young black person, probably year eight, no, not year eight, you're eight years old. And the first thing that you see on on your board is, you know, you are a slave and we're going to watch this film called Brutes. Not only are you embarrassed, but you also are gaslighted into thinking that that's where your history stops, starts and stops and um, your contributions to society are not really that valued. Secondly, outside of the school, when we're thinking about representations in the media and like what black people are often depicted as doing and being from film to TV, that is only going to reinforce what you're learning in school as well. I think if you are learning a curriculum in school that is empowering and gives you the confidence, not only are you able to have the agency to say, well, no, that's not really me. <laughs> that doesn't represent me. And um, I know who I am. That also empowers you with confidence. It gives you the confidence that inside of yourself, that gives you the ability to then not only advocate for yourself, but go out and set yourself out to do things that haven't been done before or maybe have been done before but you're going to do it even better when we're thinking about empowering it's much more than just a, a, a nice feeling it's actual skills for the world and for white people for people who are not black again it gives you that sense of understanding and empathy and those are also very important skills as a nation we really need to become a lot more emotionally intelligent and you know, support each other. This is not just for black people, this is for everybody. And I think if we can really exercise those skills, um, we're giving everyone the tools to be able to live in a in a, in a safe way, in a respectful way. Um, we can have disagreements. However, no one is being discriminated upon by, you know, the basis of their colour. I think, yeah, it's for everybody and it gives everyone confidence and an ability to understand, which is amazing. And a collective history 
that is an intelligent history, actually, <laughs> and, not, and not, as you say, not a segmented or a, a slightly pushed under the carpet history. Uh, you know, it seems like such an obvious solution. And we've talked about the reasons why perhaps it's not moving as fast as it should be. But my, my final question to you is, is uh, you know, what is the change that you want to see? I mean, we've talked a, a, around it, but, you know, if you had your way, you know, what would you see and how long do you think realistically it's going to take to get there? Um, okay, so the ultimate vision is one where all young people in the UK are empowered with a sense of belonging and identity, belonging in their communities, belonging in every establishment and belonging in um, themselves as well. And I think that is connected to the identity where they can freely express themselves, share good moments, bad moments with everyone and there is unity in the community. So I think that is the ultimate vision where every young person realizes and releases that full potential within themselves. So that's the ultimate goal for us to be able to get there. I think um, number one milestone is that school curriculums and exam board specifications enable narratives that are a lot more broader to be um, present within their uh, specifications and um, subjects that are being taught as well that's the same for books and then secondly um, we have been petitioning which is the whole idea of our campaign TBH 365 for the government to change the national curriculum which I think again is important however it's not the end goal yeah the recognition is yeah it's just key and will enable a lot more teachers to feel confident that you know they've got some examples there and they can do it so I think those are the two main ones and I think Furthermore, when it comes um, down to it, we need teachers to have the language, the tools, the confidence to be able to teach this and parents as well. So it's again, it's everyone across society, but for the benefit of young people to get to that ultimate vision. Actually, I'm going to ask you one final question. <laughs> um, if you had to give a bit of advice to firstly, a teacher listening to this, uh, a parent and a pupil about how to help you push this forward what would you what would you say to them i'd say for teachers do not be afraid of pushback and the repercussions uh socially not only from the school environment but also more broadly outside of that because i know there's a lot of narratives at the moment that say you can't do this and you can um it's absolutely possible and it, you know the reason why it's possible is because it's needed and you know young people are looking to you for that so i'd say you know be confident and don't fear the repercussions of teaching black history and for a parent i'd say explore as much as you can get outside find really creative ways of engaging young people besides um books books are a great start but i think coming back to that experience of um tangibly experiencing what it means to be in a country that we have a collective history it's important that young people can make that identification outside as well as inside the classroom so you know try and be creative and get outside and explore as much as possible and for a pupil? And for a pupil, um, I have to say research. Just keep going. Um, you have books, you have podcasts, you have films now that are dedicated to teaching black history. So research as much as you can and share that. I think our ideas are as great in as much as they are shared. And like, I think once you've done your research, make sure that you are placing that pressure on teachers to make sure that that happens because your voice is important and ultimately I'm just going to say, you run things. <laughs> you know, use your power. Yeah. Lavinia Stennett, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Every Woman is a global platform for women in business that drives positive change by empowering women to achieve their professional potential. Visit everywoman.com to discover how we're advancing women in business and inspiring a generation of future female leaders. For every woman, everywhere.